Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. In the last few years, there has been an enormous increase of interest in the science of sleep. Sleep has become recognized as a primary tool for optimizing human performance, and as a result, many high performers who used to pride themselves on how little they sleep now go to great lengths to optimize the duration and quality of their sleep. And one of the major players in the space has been 8sleep, which creates a high-end mattress that both optimizes your temperature and monitors your body as you rest. And they've grown considerably in the last few years, most recently having raised an $86 million series seed round in late 2021. In this episode, 8sleep founder and CEO Matteo Franceschetti discusses the origins of 8sleep, how he used lean startup principles to build a physical product, how they've leveraged organic channels to drive growth, most notably on Twitter, how he thinks about influencer and brand partnerships, his approach to leveling up his own skill set as a high growth founder, which I found particularly interesting and much, much more. It's a great conversation. I think you get a lot out of it. And with that, let's go to Mateo. All right, Mateo, thank you so much for doing this. Um, super excited. You know, I think as you've seen, I think maybe on Twitter a couple of times that the, the eight sleep product is probably the most life-changing product for me personally, whenever people ask the question, just in terms of quality of life improvements that I've, I've experienced in easily in 10 years. So, you know, really a uh, huge fan of you all and the team. And it's been really fun to watch as the product has evolved and as the organization has grown. So I'm very excited to do this. Why don't we start, I guess, with just for folks who aren't familiar, maybe what eight sleep is and maybe what the genesis was how you came up with the idea. Yeah, sure. So 8sleep is a technology that can improve your sleep. It does it through thermoregulation. So each side of the bed can have a different temperature. We can heat you or cool you based on your preferences and also based on what is the optimal for, for your sleep. Everything started because of two reasons. First, I used to be an athlete when I was a teenager. So I have always been in performance and recovery. And second, a certain point around seven years ago, I started wondering why Elon Musk is taking me to Mars, but I still spend a, a third of my life on a piece of dumb phone. Why there, is, <laughs> no, there was no technology in a third of yeah. my life and technology was not enhancing my sleep performance. And so that is when I decided to, to fix it or at least to try to fix it. And now we have the current product. How did you get from that idea to thermoregulation as kind of the modality for improving sleep? What was that process like? Yeah, great question. Two reasons. The first one is if you talk to people, the temperature you will notice is always extremely important for them. A lot of people sleep hot, a lot of people sleep cold, and more than anything, 50% of the couples, they have different preferences. And there yeah. is a physiological reason for that. So that yeah. is number one. Number two is there is plenty of medical evidence that thermoregulation and so temperature can improve your sleep performance. Now we see it through mm -hmm. our data, but our customers, they fall asleep up to 20% faster. They get up to 40% less toxin turns and wake-ups. And now we also have evidence that we can improve your HRV by 10%, which equals to the HRV you had six years earlier. Wow. I didn't know that. That's exciting. We did blackout shades. We did magnesium, you know, I did blue light glasses, I did all those kinds of things. But, you know, we, we bought several mattresses and I kept I, falling asleep was incredibly difficult because I was I would just get hot constantly. And then to your point, my wife is the exact opposite. So I think and you can correct me if I'm wrong here that I've seen you use terminology that kind of signaled to me that maybe you were obviously familiar at a minimum with like lean startup, and maybe we're implementing some of 
the, the processes in terms of customer development and things like that. I'd be really curious because this is a physical product and most of the people that do lean startup type stuff, they, they, they apply it to software. And, and I know, and I know you've obviously got a software component to it, but you know, especially in the early days when you're doing customer discovery and things like that, and you're trying to do rapid prototyping and iterating on the product and things like that, like how did, how did you apply some of that? And maybe what were some of the nuances that were different when you're trying to build a, a physical product or a hybrid physical software type product? It's a great question. And actually, even today, after multiple years and with a larger team, the product development process for software and hardware is very different. On software, I think we have reached a point where we are really good at very small iterations, almost on a weekly basis. So we move extremely fast and we are obsessed with iteration, customer feedback, and you keep adjusting. On hardware, that is not possible, right? A startup that wants to move extremely fast, they can ship a product every 12 months. But usually the rule of thumb is that uh, you should ship a product every 18 months if you're extremely good and efficient. Um, So at a certain point, you can do some customer discovery, but we, we notice that they tend to be mainly directional. Right. So customers, they don't know what they don't know. Now, there is the famous thing from Harry Ford saying, if you were asking people what they wanted, they would have told you that they wanted faster horses. They wouldn't have <laughs> right. thought about the car. Right. right. Uh, so the principle is similar. And so you need to focus on the pain points. And so what we heard originally uh, was that, no, okay, I sleep hot and I keep sweating or I fight with my partners because I want a colder temperature. She doesn't, or my wife goes to sleep with socks and a sweatshirt, things like that, right? But you never want to focus on how to solve it for hardware. That is your job as an entrepreneur or as a startup. And then at a certain point, you just need to commit and go for that. So you will have way less data points I would call it somewhere between 60 and 80% data points, while instead, I don't know, on the website or on the app, we we get to statistical significance for everything we do. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it seems like, I mean, clearly you made a lot of decisions around the form factor for the product. I mean, like the, the, the cover itself has a different feel to it than any other mattress I've ever seen. The, you've got machinery going on underneath that. So you have some kind of, constra- you know, some interesting kind of constraints there. How do you go from like this directional, you know, how, 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 how do you take these, these directional anecdotal, relatively small sample size pieces of feedback, given the stakes and, and given the kind of an 18 month kind of turnaround time, how did you, how do you make decisions based on that data and incorporate it into the product? At the end of the day, the thing that has helped us the most is we have a vision so I wrote a memo in 2017 outlining our vision and, and what we want to build. And so we know we want to fix sleep, right? We want to compress your sleep and save your life. Compress your sleep means that you will be able to sleep and achieve the same amount of rest in less time. Mm-hmm. As a, an exaggeration, imagine if you could get uh, if you could sleep only six hours and get more rest than when you were sleeping eight hours, right? And yeah. there is clinical evidence of what impacts your sleep, right? It's, is temperature of the bed and the air, light, noise, and air, right? Mm-hmm. And so, okay, as long as you great, develop a great experience, you know that that will improve sleep. Mm-hmm. On the other side, is saving your life means that doesn't matter if you sleep six or eight hours, it's still a lot of time. It's almost an intercontinental flight every single night. And yeah. so there we are just working on sensors that can detect early signs of 
I don't know, illnesses or any problem with your own health. So by having this vision, we know what we want to execute against. Then it becomes more a matter of, okay, what form factor or what user experience. Got it. You know, it's funny because you entered, you mentioned 2017. It was sort of an interesting time. Mattresses were, I mean, there were, there were dozens and dozens of mattress companies that kind of came out and, you know, the viral ads and all of those kinds of things. And they were, they were just people were plowing money into these companies and they were spending a ton of that on a customer acquisition. And it, it sounds like a lot of them ended up being upside down. You seem to have approached getting early traction very differently than how a lot of them did. It didn't seem like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it didn't seem like you were heavily reliant on paid, for example. You write a lot more like organic channels and word of mouth and things like that. As you were evaluating the competitive landscape, how did that inform your decision-making from a distribution standpoint, from an initial traction standpoint? How did that inform the decisions you made there? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. We are really inspired by companies like Tesla more than a typical D2C brand. Um, yeah. And so Tesla spends zero in, in paid marketing, right? Yeah. Everything is, is invested in, in the product. And so we tend to have that approach. At the same time, in good or in bad, we really don't look at mattress companies. We don't have one single foam expert in the whole organization, right? And the whole point is dump foam can be purchased uh, by manufacturers. It's like literally like going to the market and it's just a matter of how much you want to pay, right? But the foam exists. You don't have to invent nothing, right? And I think what a lot of these mattress companies did, which was still great, they reinvented the purchase experience. So you wouldn't go to the store. You can just buy online. It's good. Right. It's proven. There are a lot of reviews, right? So that yeah. is where they innovated, but they didn't innovate with the product. The product was the same, again, piece of dumb foam that we have been using since 1966 when I think a memory foam was invented. Yeah. Um, so in our case, we went in a very opposite direction and say, look, we don't care about the foam. We don't even have a foam expert. We just focus on the technology for sleep enhancement. Yeah. And we rely on word of mouth. So today, still 20, 30% of our sales come through word of mouth. It's just people referring people like you. They like the product. They talk to friends while they're having dinners and the friends end up buying. Yeah, got it. Okay. That's interesting. You know, so obviously there's like the manufacturing piece of it. There's also, you know, shipping concerns, how you handle returns. Cause you know, you pack it in a box. If, if for some reason there's an issue, I would imagine you've had to learn a lot on the fly around dealing with physical products and especially something that has a pretty large footprint, <laughs> you know, for folks that are maybe interested in building physical, you know, physical product based businesses, what were maybe some of the lessons that you learned? I don't know if you had a background in it prior, but what were some of the lessons that you've learned about running and operating a company that has has inventory, has warehousing, has, you know, all those kinds of things. Anything interesting that you learned there relative that might be surprising to people who are used to just being in a software-based world? Yeah, a lot. We, we, we could talk for days or weeks about the, the hard lessons, but let me try to distill the most important ones. So in my case, I didn't have any experience in, 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 in hardware. So it was yeah. something completely new. So the number one thing is invest very early in experts in hardware, both program managers and engineers, because mm -hmm. otherwise you will always underestimate how long does it take to build and develop something, right? Yeah. Supply chain. The other challenge is when you start, you can ship new products quickly 
because you are still moving a small number of units. As you start getting bigger and you approach, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars in units, uh, a new product introduction is not just complicated because you need to produce a lot of units, but it becomes also way more risky for the business, right? Because if you introduce a new product and the product doesn't work before it was impacting your top line a couple of millions of dollars, now it's hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, The key, the other key thing people underestimate and I was underestimating is the importance of margins. Our margins today are really good, but at the time I was completely naive about the importance. And so it has been, a, I, I would say, a great lesson that I have learned about how to fix them. But yeah. if you don't have margins, particularly with CACs today, right, and paid media, no way you can scale and still have a healthy business. Yeah. When you're starting off, how do you, like, if you were going to do it again, using the like the margin lesson, how, like, what what would you do to to because there's a relationship again like you're pro, you're prototyping these early ones like you said and you're shipping them out to a couple of people and you you have a slightly compressed time frame in terms of your iteration speed were there things that you could have done that that would have had a big impact on margin even in the early days when you're trying to iterate on product or is it really once you you know what the thing is and now it's time to maybe on a smaller scale but mass produce things is like, when, when, when would you have made the switch to uh, a margin focus? It sounds like earlier, but maybe not at the very beginning or is that incorrect? I would say at the end of the day, what I have learned is, is never a price problem is a value problem, right? Because if you deliver value, and particularly in the early days of a startup, the first three years, there is plenty of people that can pay whatever it they want for your product if your product is good and is delivering a meaningful value to them, right? So sometimes even internally, we had some pushback from our team to say, oh, maybe we are not too narrow in our brand positioning because we are going for people in performance. Maybe we should be broader that will help our growth. What I can tell you is all the times that we narrowed our audience and we increased prices, obviously together with not raising the bar of the product, it always yeah. accelerated our sales. And so there is where the value of the product is more important than the price. People, if your product is good, in the early days, people will pay a couple of hundred bucks more to give you the margin you deserve. If your product sucked, yeah. then focus on the product and not on the price either. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it seems like it can create, if you do it right, it seems like it can create a virtuous cycle too, where it's, you're you're starting with a, you're, you know, you're compressing you know, your beachhead market, it seems like in your case, you were able to find an aspirational market that other people look up to. So like, here's a group of people who have willingness to pay, who tend to be on the bleeding edge from like a biohacking perspective or whatever it is, and have all these other people look up to them. And in your case, I would think that you can make the just the ROI justification is relatively easy for, for those people where they're like, like you said, I've spent a third of my life asleep on this thing. So from a, you know, if I amortize this expense based on how much time I spend on it, the ROI is a no brainer. So I think that probably, yeah, that's huge. It's bigger if you think it's bigger than a car. I always say that, right? People spend whatever from 15K to hundreds of thousands of dollars in a car and you use the car probably what, two hours a day. Here we are talking about 4X that usage plus the health impact. So... Mm -hmm. 
I think that is where there is actually an opportunity over time in our business where potentially if you deliver more value, you can even increase prices. The key is how do you deliver a 10x bigger value, right? It's something like the value needs to grow 10x to, for you to increase the price 20%. This is almost yeah. a 5x relationship between value and price increase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's one of those things, I mean, anybody that's used it, I would have to think feels that way. And so, but it's the kind of thing where it's like, you have to use it before you, it's not, you know, unlike a car, which there's a lot of status baked into it. Although, I mean, just based on what people do on Twitter, I mean, <laughs> there's a, there is a, there's a signaling. Component. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. 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 It took That's us some time, but it's getting there, which is, yeah, it's surprising. At the beginning, one of the challenges we had as a company is something that our product, you don't see it, right? A lot of wearables. Now you're here in the call and you just see me wearing yeah. an Apple Watch. Our product, yeah. you don't see it, but it has reached a status with at least a certain audience where yeah. people are proud of saying that they're sleeping on that because it means they are taking care of their health. Yeah. Was that a deliberate strategic decision that like, did, were there things that you did from a strategic marketing perspective to make it more likely that like, did you see a world where eight sleep would become a status symbol in a way? I mean, did you, was that a deliberate thing or did that just happen by accident? It was deliberate, but you use the perfect word. We did things that would make it more likely, mm-hmm. but you don't have 100% certainty, right? Sure. But right. that was a North Star. And we tried to say, okay, how can we make the thing a thing where people are proud of sleeping on this product and sleeping on this product means something about the person who, that you are? But obviously, it was a, a huge component of unknown if this could yeah. ever work. Yeah. But by doing it, I mean, to your point, I mean, if you can create that environment, your, your pricing ability has almost no upper, I mean, I guess it it would take, eventually you would reach an upper bound, but I mean, I bet those people, especially the people who have used it at this point, I bet if they went back again and you said, and they, they know what they now know, and you said the mattress is 10 K, I bet they'd still do it, (laughs) you know, because the impact on their life was so high. And that group of people, they're the, the, their price elasticity is such that that would be, a no, it would still be a no brainer, you know, which is a pretty unique position for you all to be in. It's pretty yeah. exciting. What, the other thing I learned, at least in our business, you don't want to get into a price war, which mm-hmm. is what happened to a lot of the D2C mattress businesses, right? Because that is where you compress margins and you just fight about pricing and offers. And yeah. there is, in the long term, it's going to, kill the company because unless you have an incredible competitive advantage in margins and your ability to drop prices, how do you win? And so our board have always pushed us to, again, increase the value and Mm -hmm. to prove that the value would justify a higher price. Then if it doesn't justify, then you, again, you have a different type of problem. But focus on potentially delivering more value and at that point find bigger margins, even if that requires more R&D. That makes sense. Along that you mentioned the board, along those lines, you know, you, you, you obviously raised venture. On the one hand, it was a category, and I know you don't think of yourself as a mattress company, but I would imagine that that was at least initially how they kind of, the box that maybe they put you in. But you broke probably a lot of mental models for some of those funds in terms of the types of products that they typically invest in and 
things like that. How did you convince the early investors to come in and to buy into this vision? What did they see that you saw and what, what were you in alignment on? So today we have two products, right? One is the cover, one is the mattress. But the biggest yeah. part of our revenue is the cover. And mm-hmm. so essentially the cover, you can place it on top of any mattress that you have of any bed. Um, yeah. So you can keep whatever you have or you can buy whatever you you have and you can just make it smart with our technology. So yeah. if you look at our business from that lens, you, we are really a wearable company. The, yeah. You just don't have to wear our product. It's a different form factor, but we are really competing with Apple Watch and the other wearables. Yeah. Um, the advantage that we have is our form factor is unique and so make us different. Our form factor is something that you use every single day once you buy it, unless you're traveling. And so it yeah. gives us an incredible retention on data. And second, yeah. we have a lot of space. And so we can use uh, data, sorry, sensors that no wearable company can, can afford in terms of cost and space. Yeah. And so if you think of us becoming the potentially the greatest health platform for consumers, there is no better form factor. Because again, you use the product every single day and we can embed hundreds of sensors and the impact on our margin will be minimal. So that is how we convince our investors since from the beginning. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, a lot of a lot of wearables. I know, like in a healthcare context, when they're prescribed by a physician or whatever it is, and I would imagine even just like in a in a DTC standpoint, from a retention perspective, adherence is a huge issue. Like you said, like you have to you have to uh, fold this thing into into your life in a material way, and whether that's a you know a continuous glucose monitor or even like. You know, I had the aura ring for a while and I had to remember to charge it. And if I forgot to charge it, then I didn't get good data. And like, to your point, like, I don't have to do anything. I just lie down and, and the data, you know, shows up. So that's, that's really interesting. Very cool. You know, I, I, I obviously found out, and I think probably most people found out about you all, or maybe not most, but many people found out about through, through Twitter and you've used Twitter, I think masterfully, both as a marketing tool, as a, as a, you know, customer support tool. It seems like it's probably been pretty instrumental to your business. I guess A, is that true? And B, to the degree that it's true, like what what have you learned maybe about how to leverage Twitter for other founders that are trying to get started and, and are thinking that that might be a piece of their marketing mix? Like what is it what has it been useful for and how have you learned how to leverage it? Yeah. So yeah, for us it has been extremely useful. I was not using Twitter at all until probably two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're targeting the tech community is the perfect place to be because a lot of tech people are on Twitter. That is the platform that is being used, right? And so for us, our early adopters were tech people. So it was the best place to be. The second thing you learn is uh, customers like to connect a face to a brand and to a product. And this comes with pros and cons, right? When they want to kick your ass because there is a bug in the product, then obviously they, they tweeted yeah. me or they DM me, but yeah. at the same time, it gives them a sense of trust of, okay, so there is this human being, there is this person, this guy with this name that is behind this company and he's putting, you know, 100 hours a, a week of uh, effort and, and work time to make it happen. And so that has helped a lot for us. And the third is I'm a big promoter of building in public. So in particular, if you are, if you have a company with big technological ambitions, the more you disclose 
the better because it's what happened with Tesla. Then people will start caring about this company and they will forgive you if there are certain small bags because in the grand scheme of your roadmap, there is still so much that you can deliver in terms of value to them that there is forgiveness. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's uh, really interesting. I mean, you know, even you mentioned like when things go go wrong, people have an easy way to reach out to you. But I mean, you all seem like that you've that's an opportunity too. Like there's a book, old book, Discipline of Market Leaders, and it talked about you know you can compete in three different areas. It's like product quality, which I think you all are doing really well. But most startups struggle there because they don't have the resources. And then it's like operational excellence, and the third one's customer intimacy. And like one of the things I took from that book was everybody can compete on customer intimacy. They just usually choose not to. And because it's hard, right? But relative to every other, to the degree that you would, you know, lump other mattress companies or whatever in as a competitor of yours, you're the only one I would imagine where someone has an issue and they find you and they reach out to you. And I mean, I've experienced it even, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily you directly, but I think, you know, like your customer support via Twitter is incredible. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unlike any most other consumer products that you could buy. So, I mean, like, yes, probably a pain in the ass, but, but also I would imagine that was a huge source of value and, and its own, you know, form of word of mouth. Now, so now you have, Hey, this product changed my life. And then, Oh, by the way, they're also amazing. If you ever have an issue, that's a huge yeah. strategic advantage, I would think. I think if you have a consumer business, you need to really focus on that. This yeah. doesn't mean we are Perfect. We are not. We, we had our not tough times, but making customer support really good is, mm-hmm. is a must. I don't think it's even a decision. You have to nail that because yeah. otherwise you just kill the whole word of mouth. Yeah, it's been huge. Along the marketing lens, I know you, you recently announced a partnership with the Mercedes Formula One team, which sounds like that's close to your heart anyway. But you've also done partnerships with CrossFit athletes and things like that. Like how... I'd be curious to what you've learned maybe about doing partnerships as a, as a piece of your marketing mix as well. And like when that's, when that's useful, what is it? It's obviously not necessarily a direct response thing, but clearly there's a, you know, it's a brand component, but what have you learned about exploring partnerships and when they're appropriate? I think the, the part that works the best is they say something about the brand, right? And so you you will not expect a major acceleration in sales the day, the day you announce a partnership in CrossFit or an athlete in CrossFit. But, yes. you know, you, you start putting pieces about, you know, who you are for. And it doesn't mean that we are for CrossFit athletes only. Clearly, we are not. But yeah. you're almost setting an expectation for your customers, even if they are not in CrossFit, the the people that are extremely focused on their performance and recovery use this product. So it almost generates a sense of trust. And it also gives a sense of, okay, this product is for people in fitness, not in CrossFit, not in Formula One, not people just going to batteries. But when you start putting all these pieces together, if you are taking care of your health, if you're health conscious, you will immediately say, oh, probably this is the product for me. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there anything and it else? Elevates the brand. Yeah, 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 totally, totally, hundred percent. Aspirational types of purchases. Is there anything else you've learned about? You know, you mentioned kind of obsession over the product is probably the first and best way to maximize the likelihood of word of mouth. But is there anything else that you've learned about engineering? Again, like you said, you can't guarantee it. But anything else you've learned about 
maximizing the chances of success in terms of driving organic word of mouth? Because it seems like it's a huge percentage of your customer acquisition, I would think, just based on what I've seen. Anything else you've learned there? For the word of mouth specifically, I mean, obviously there are a bunch of tricks, right? Of you know how you surface that in the app. Obviously, uh, even for referrals, you want to make sure that there is a benefit for the person referring the product, but there is also a benefit for the person who will end up buying the product. So it's yes. like a, a, a financial benefit on both sides. But what we have seen in our case, a lot of our customers, they don't even use the referral code because probably yep. they don't know and they don't remember. And so they just keep recommending it because at the end of the day, the impact on their life, specifically in our case, their sleep, is so meaningful yep. that they rave about that, right? Yeah. yeah. And so sometimes you just want to, what we call it is, is a multiple touch point strategy with some of the customers. And so we want to make sure that they are exposed to other people that use the product, plus they see us on media platforms. And so by seeing the product multiple times, that is how you build trust. At our yeah. price point, is not a person that just happened overnight. You need yeah. to digest it. You need to discuss it with your partner. You need to be convinced to invest this amount of money. And so trust is really important before you, know, you pull the plan, and, and, and the, 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 the trigger, and you buy the cover, yeah. the sleep cover. Yeah. And so tap, tapping. So I could see how, you know, like you got the, you got the sponsorship piece to it. You've got the founder themselves being visible and kind of like you said, like building in public. And then, yeah, you've got influential. I would imagine like, especially, you know, because it, because a lot of your word of mouth comes from people who I think maybe would be considered aspirational to larger groups of people. I would imagine that that's part of it too, in terms of maybe they are aware of the financial incentive for sharing, but they don't do it anyway, because that type of person wouldn't try to monetize their audience directly, right? Like they're just sharing it because they want to help. Like you said, it, it transformed their lives and they want to help other people. So I would, I, I, I bet there's almost a disincentive to try to transactionalize the referral in their case. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think it also happens a lot casually, like literally, you know, when you're having dinner with a friend. So it's not yeah. that you're there with the app. It's not like, a, again, a 10 bucks app. It's more something yeah. you're having dinner. We talk about this product. They go and they check it out. They see that you now Mercedes F1 uses the product and CrossFit. And then they see us on paid media. If they're on Twitter, they, they see other people raving about us. And so within X days, they end up buying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I'd, I'd, I'd love to learn a little bit. I mean, you, you, you have some content pillars, I think I would say, in terms of what you share personally. And obviously there's like some you know, behind the scenes business stuff, there's wellness stuff, but increasingly, and maybe it's not increasing and I just noticed it more lately, but you've been sharing a lot around about like your evolution as a, as a leader and as a manager. And, you know, I know you've been really fortunate in terms of some of your board members and your ability to learn from them, but not every founder is able to grow with the business and to level up with the business, especially when it hits kind of a a pretty rapid inflection point. And it seems like you've managed to do that. I'd be curious to learn maybe what you've, what you've learned from mentors or what you've done yourself to be able to level up as the company has grown in complexity and as the kind of stakes have gotten higher. Yeah. I invest quite a bit of time on my own growth. I would call mm -hmm. it probably 10 hours a week. Mm -hmm. And I call it like learning and it could be reading books, listening to podcasts, uh, or even working on our own operational excellence. 
Yeah. That is where we have raised the bar quite a bit. I wrote uh, actually a whole memo that is our operating playbook about mm-hmm. how I rate and judge our executives and myself. And there are five attributes of greatness at yeah. sleep based on how you need to operate. And then there is almost like a three to four pages describing yeah. each of these attributes. Yeah. And this is the reflection of things that Keith Raboys might have shared or the, the CEO of Snowflake or also from books like uh, High Output Management. So yeah. I read a lot. I listen a lot. I, I have mentors or board members. And then I try to condensate everything and transfer that to, to my people. Yeah, yeah. Are there any major takeaways that you learned that, that you think are most relevant or applicable? Maybe maybe more most broadly applicable to other founders or folks that might be listening to this that, you know, if they don't have the benefit of ever having those kinds of folks on their board, but could, you know, could benefit from that. Anything major that yeah. you took away from them? Yeah, a couple of key things. The first one is a rule that I, we call opposite metrics. When you set a metric, yeah. you always need to set an opposite metric. And I give you an idea. If you go to the growth team and you just say, look, you need to grow 5x this year, they will throw money out of the window or they will pay people to buy the product and then they can grow 5x. So you need to set what we call net margin, right? Or a CAC. And so those are two opposite metrics. It's like even in hiring, right? If you just go to the hiring people and say, oh, you need to hire 100 people, but you just hire anyone and then they achieve their own goal. But then there, there needs to be a quality metric. So opposite yeah. metric is the most important. Never set a metric if there is not an opposite one. The second and are those is, always, are those always uh, one is a um, one is like a, a quantity type of metric or you know grow, uh, some type of a growth type of metric, and then the other one is related to the quality of that growth and whatever that lens is. Does that tend to be the other pairs? You know, so it's like if I see an increase in customer uh, complaints, then obviously we have a quality problem. Is that kind of how you think about those two? Yeah, it might not be quantity, but it could be even a deadline. Or you need to ship this product at this date, but then you need to have this quality, right? So it could be time or quantity and quality, but more or less it's three and you play with two out of the three. Got it. So that is one. The second one is developing people. So you have heard many times people saying, no, your your company is your team, the importance of hiring. But yeah. I think a part of that is not explained well enough is how important it is for executives to develop their own people and to yeah. develop what we call internally barrels, right? So the rule of thumb is you can move as you, you can run as many projects as the number of barrels. Barrels are A players that can take a project where I just come to you, I tell you my idea, you go and you execute meeting our bar. Mm-hmm. If you don't have barrels as an executive and you are the only barrel, hopefully because you have the executive, you can run one real program. Right. Yeah. So you need to keep developing your people from when they are junior and to develop them into barrels to a point where within six to nine months, they can really run programs for you. And that mm-hmm. becomes what we call managerial leverage. And yeah. so substantially what we do internally is we say how many people you have Okay, and how many core initiatives you're running. So let's say you have nine people, okay, and you're running three core initiatives, your rate is three. Okay. Let's say you have instead 30 people and you run three programs, your rate is 10. 
So the higher the number, the relationship, the worse you are doing. Meaning Got sometimes it. executives, they end up to say, oh, I have a larger team, so I'm cooler than you. But mm-hmm. that's not the right proxy. The right proxy is how efficient you are. And so yeah. it's number of people divided by the number of core initiatives. And the lower the number, the more efficient you are. How have you learned about like either synergies or dependencies among those core initiatives? Like how do you avoid a situation where you've got a bunch of A players that are all running in? How, how, do, you, how do you tie that back to, hey, this is, the, this is where the organization's trying to go. And how do I make sure that this initiative isn't conflicting with this initiative or keeping them from running into each other? Are there any strategies to minimize that so everybody is able to sprint without having a bunch of collisions along the way? So we have, we, we have a spreadsheet where every executive has uh, its own goals for the quarter, right? Yep. These goals are substantially OKRs and the KRs yep. they have, okay, you need to move this metric and that metric, so opposite metrics. And so I review each OKRs with each executive first, and then we do a review all together to make sure that everything is aligned and is there cross-functional goals, uh, both executives or the multiple executives are aligned. Yeah. Uh, And so that is the easiest way to make sure that everything that is happening in the company is now moving towards the same end goal. It could be a product introduction, or it could be improving MPS or doubling down on, on growth. You still have the problem sometimes at the micro level with some people. And so for that, what we do is we double down on writing and agendas. Our agendas are substantially memos. We have weekly meetings okay. about, I don't know, a certain topic. And the agenda is like two to three pages, with, which is very detailed. And in this way, you leverage clarity of thinking, which is one of the five attributes mm-hmm. of excellence we use. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Like the Amazon memo model, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's exactly that applied on to agendas on a weekly basis. You mentioned your five attributes of greatness. Actually, I, I, I have read that. And one of the ones that I was particularly interested in was you emphasized this idea of pace a lot. And I think you said, you specifically, you said, you know, you stopped thinking of yourself as a manager, which is a reactive term. And you started thinking of yourself as a pacemaker instead. I'd love to learn, like, I guess, A, why that, why that was an area of emphasis for you. And then maybe some of the ways that you've found effective for modeling that in your team. Because that was a really interesting idea. Yeah. So the first most important thing is startups, they have one advantage against the, the big company, which is speed, right? That is how you defeat bigger companies because they have more money than you, they have more people, they have better customer knowledge. So the only way you can beat them is by moving faster. But your job as a CEO or as a manager is to compress the cycles of everything you do. If you start losing two days a week and you start losing under you know, 20, 25% efficiency per week, you're substantially losing a week in a month. Right. Yes. So I go back to my team and I tell them every single time that a week is 2% of the year. Right. Would you throw 2% of the money away every month? No. Right. So 2% matters in, in, in a company. The way then you, you fix that is by setting deadlines for everything you do. Okay. Mm-hmm. So first step one is. What is the deadline for everything you, you tell me? Even if there isn't one action item, the action item needs to have a deadline. But then yeah. you also challenge that on the deadline, in particular on the sequencing, 
right? Okay. Because there might be five action items, and maybe the most important, just because it came up last, no, now they're telling you that it will take a week. And so your job as a manager is to revisit the sequencing of all the action items and making sure that what really matters the most can be done faster. And when we think faster is usually you should try to think in 48 hours increments. Obviously, it depends on the project, right? If it's hardware, if it's software, it depends on the complexity of the action item. But let's say you and I need to take a decision. You need to look at certain data, come back to me with data X, Y, and Z to take the decision. On my yeah. mind, that needs to happen at the latest within 48 hours. Yeah. Better if it happens today. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. That's that's really, really cool. As you're, as you're thinking about like, so, I mean, you take your, your professional development pretty seriously and I'm sure that you have pretty aggressive goals for the next say 12 to 18 months. Like what are you, what are you thinking about and prioritizing from a self-development perspective to be the right leader for the kind of the next phase of the organization? Are there any kind of topics that you're focusing on or ways that you're trying to level up personally? Yeah, the big focus right now is, for me is to try to write down all the knowledge uh, I have not developed and learned. Yeah. Yeah. And second, even bigger is to, I started doing an internal session with our second lines mm-hmm. when I teach them the five attributes of excellence. And more than teaching them is more, okay, this is the, the memo, read it. I don't want to talk about that. You can read it on your own. Make yeah. a question or tell me a problem you had last week and let's yeah. discuss how I would have approached it. And it's not even just me because it's a group session. There are yeah. like five to 10 people in the company. Yeah. But it's, yeah. okay, you had this problem. The rest of the group, how would you have approached it? And they start talking and I, I just direct a little bit the conversation, but then they start helping each other and they start memorizing the five attributes of excellence. And okay, but here you should have done that within 48 hours and you should have changed the order of priorities. And they start saying it on their own. And so I'm just a passive host. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, like you mentioned the idea of kind of managerial leverage. It sounds like another, another well, a couple are, if I can write down and codify things that maybe have been resident inside of my head and people have been seeing by me modeling them, but that doesn't scale as well as codifying them. So that's one. And then two, it sounds like putting them in kind of group scenarios where you're, pri- you're prioritizing those meetings because now that's an opportunity for you to encode in their DNA, you know, your five attributes, but kind of in a, in a more scalable way than, than like a one-on-one or that type of thing. It seems like you're looking yeah. for ways to, to apply leverage throughout. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, this is actually a rule from Keith Raboys. And I think Keith was investing four to five hours to prepare the OLENs. Uh, wow. He was a square, the CEO of Square. Yeah. And you say, wow, four to five hours for the CEO of Square. But his right. point was, if I invest four to five hours on something that can impact 100, 200, 300 people, yeah. that is the best efficiency I can ever find. And so in my own small world, what I do is if I can teach 10 people how to be more efficient and more effective, and I invest 30 minutes, 45 minutes of my time, that is way more powerful than me coaching their executive where I don't even know what the transition uh, or the the knowledge transfer will be. 100%. Yeah, that's really, really cool. 
That's awesome. Well, listen, I want to respect your time. This has been really, really fascinating. For folks that maybe want to learn more, I guess, about Eat Sleep or maybe about your your thoughts as you're starting, sounds like you're starting to share that stuff a little bit more. Where do, where do I send people? They can go to 8sleep.com, 8 like the number, E-I-G-H-T sleep.com. And there on the homepage, there is also a link to my Twitter. I'm pretty okay. active there. So if you want to know more about sleep myself or some of these uh, operational excellence principles, please uh, just follow me. Very cool. Well, again, you know, I really appreciate it. And, you know, your, your product, you know, other than maybe my phone, I can't think of a product that's had a bigger kind of material impact on my life. So, you know, congrats to, on, on all your success so far and look forward to seeing what you continue to, to do in the coming years. So this was really great. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. guest today was Matteo Franceschetti. For more ideas on how to disrupt your own organization, visit us at manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.